Acts chapter 2, verse 42, kind of get us started. See, a summary of emphases is this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Last week we talked about what does it mean to proclaim the kingdom of God. And we defined God's kingdom as God's sovereign activity to redeem people to himself. We talked about how God from not only even before sin, but when he created all things, he created it with us in mind to display his glory all over the world. And then when sin entered the world, the story of scripture after that and the story of history after that is precisely this definition of God sovereignly working ultimately through his son Jesus to redeem people back unto himself. And so if we're going to be a church that is kingdom pursuit focused or pursuing the kingdom, then we need to be a people that it says, God, we want to be a part of your sovereign activity to redeem people unto yourself. This week, we're going to dive into the topic of kingdom prayer in the book of Acts. We're going to see that prayer in the first century was fundamental, but oftentimes prayer in our churches today are supplemental at best. We see it as an optional aspect of what we do. But here's the target statement that I want us to walk away with. And if you don't have uh, a sermon handout, raise your hand and Mario or someone will make sure you get one. If you want to follow along in the fill in the blanks, we've got a few fill in the blanks today. We've got some places to go. Um, there's going to be about 50 slides. And so they're going to be busy. You're going to be busy. I, I say that because you are like, man, I'm trying to write maybe these references down. Because here is my goal. I want to outline some things, but I want to give you places to turn to, to see these truths. So I can email you my notes later. Uh, you can write them down. However, is best. Maybe it's all going to be in the book of Acts. So we're talking like one or two pages at a time. So maybe you want to flip and underline but here's our target statement we're going to see as we talk about kingdom prayer in the book of Acts. They, being the first century church, knew that they would never see the power of God apart from the dependent prayer to God. Let me say that again. They knew, or hopefully if we're applying it to ourselves, we should know that we would never see the power of God apart from the dependent prayer to God. There's three questions I want to ask just to kind of examine some passages in the book of Acts as we relate to this topic. The first question, who did they pray to? I think it's important for us to understand, not only as we get to the other questions of why did they pray and what did they pray for, but understand who we're praying to. And we're going to look at who they saw that they were praying to and let it challenge us. Two characteristics that we see in the book of Acts that are common and who they were praying to. The first, for the, your fill in the blank, is they were praying to a God who is sovereign over everything in the world. It was already in our definition from last week of God's kingdom as his sovereign activity to redeem people to himself. But I want to look that God is sovereign over everything, including persecution. Common theme in the book of Acts, but God was even sovereign over persecution. I want us to look at Acts 4.23. What's happening is they just were released from prison, Peter, and uh, he's released from prison and told, hey, you're not to talk about Jesus anymore. So he comes to the other believers, and that's where we pick it up in Acts 4.23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, what? 
sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Let, let me paraphrase what they just prayed. In their own persecution, they cry out to God and they go, Sovereign Lord, you're sovereign even over your own son's death. That's what they just quote. They quoted the story of when Jesus died. And they said, you're sovereign even over your own son's death, so I better believe you're sovereign over our death and our persecution. And so we're acknowledging right now in the midst of persecution that Jesus didn't die because it was out of his control. But Jesus died, died intentionally because it was part of his sovereign plan to redeem people unto himself. And they're looking at that perspective as they face what they face. That Jesus didn't even die apart from the plan of God, and neither will we. And neither will our situation or what we're facing. And so whatever it is, from the get-go, they understood they were praying to a sovereign God who has control even over them. So they say in verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal of signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Do you see that in the midst of their concern, they were claiming theologically God's sovereignty even over his own death, and therefore trusting in God's sovereignty even over their own lives? Not only was he sovereign over persecution, but we see that we're praying to a God who is sovereign over the mission. Acts 16, 6 through 10, because we want to be kingdom pursuit. We want to be a part of God's mission. And when they went through the region of Figueria and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they come up to Mesia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the, Spirit, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mesia, they went on down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Church, as we think about the mission that God has for us, we understand that God's sovereign over that mission. It is his sovereign mission that he's a part of, that we get to be a part of. And as they lived on mission, they understood that he was in control and they trusted him in this. Continuing just to kind of give an overview. But we see that not only... God, he's sovereign everything. Let's continue. Let's just look at Acts 18, 9. And the Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. God is in control, and I want us to recognize that whether it's mission, whether it's persecution, whether it's life, when we pray, we're recognizing we need God's power and we're dependent upon him, we're praying to a God who's not on his throne who might be able to help, who might be in control, but we're praying to a God who is who's definitely on his throne and is definitely in control. 
And therefore, we can pray to a God secondly. Who did they pray to? God who's sovereign and a God who supplies everything we need. This is an encouragement to me. This is encouragement to us because there's a lot that we need. We recognize we live in a fallen world of brokenness and hurts. And whether it be healing, whether it be finances, whether it be relationships, whether it be something else, we need things. Acts 17, 24, and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord in heaven and earth, Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It could be a simple church family as the fact that inflation's difficult in the economy. We heard of someone being laid off just a couple of days ago in our church, and it could be as simple as we're facing some a season economically maybe in your life that's more difficult. It could be as simple as that, and it can be a lot of other things, but let us be reminded that God is in control, that God has everything, and he supplies all our needs. So let's focus on who did they pray to, They prayed to a God who is sovereign, who is in control, and he is sovereignly working in his mission. Second question, why did they pray? Now, here is where we're going to slow down a little bit. We're going to look at and we're going to read a lot of verses and we're just going to see because I want us to see the theme of dependency upon God for his power to work. So why did they pray? And this is kind of where the target statement really comes out of. But they were utterly dependent upon God's power. They're utterly dependent upon God's power. So here's what I want to do in this section is I want us to look at where we see the church praying and what was the result of in Acts. Where do we see the church pray? What was the result? Where do we see the church pray? What was the results? Acts 1.8, this isn't going to be on the screen, but it's getting me to Acts 14, which will be on the screen. Acts 1.8 says, Jesus said to his disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. So power is a focal point. Power is kind of what we're talking about. We want to see God mightily and powerfully work. Ephesians, Paul would say that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives within you. So power matters. And so Jesus says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The disciples are like, sounds great. Jesus goes off into heaven. And they're like, okay, what now? Scripture says that they were staring into heaven to the point that an angel had to come down and go, why y'all keep looking up into heaven? Like, like, it's like this moment where Jesus is like, all right, uh, you know, Gabriel, whoever, I don't know, it doesn't tell the name, like, you're, you're going to have to go tell them to stop looking up here. People are going to think they're crazy, right? And he goes down and says, what are you doing? Well, all they know is Jesus said, when the power comes, then, or the Holy Spirit comes, power's going to come. Well, the Holy Spirit hasn't come, so power hasn't come. What was their answer? What was their solution? They went to prayer. They went into the church, and then they prayed. They went to the church. There wasn't a church yet. They went into a room. They locked the door out of fear for their lives, and they devoted themselves to prayer. And they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. They didn't strategize. They didn't do a marketing campaign, social media campaign. They prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. And what happened? The Holy Spirit comes. The day of Pentecost comes. Peter gets up and he preaches boldly. Remember, he's the coward who denied Jesus three times. He's now filled with power of the Holy Spirit. He's preaching. What was the result? Acts 2.41. Those who received the word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. I want you to get this picture. That the people that could fit in this room, they could have fit everybody 
in the early church at that point in this room prior to the day of Pentecost, in this room, they pray, they preach, and God mightily works. Acts 3.1, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. As they're going, they encounter a lame man who's asking for some things, and they say, well, we don't have those things, but we do have the power of Jesus. We tell you, get up and be healed. And because of that, Peter preaches again. People are coming to Christ. Persecution happens. But look at Acts 4.4. What was the result? But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So what's happening? We're seeing prayer. They were going to prayer, and the power of God came. And what? He's sovereignly redeeming people back to himself. Acts 4.31. We already read this part, but let's read it again. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what? Continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Church is growing. We get to Acts chapter 6. Because the church is growing, the elders need help. And so they gather together and they're like, we need some deacons. We need some deacons to come help us out. And so Acts 6, 3 through 4. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, of whom we will appoint to this duty of helping assist But we will devote ourselves to what? Prayer and the ministry of the word, the study, the teaching of the word. What was the result of that? Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. I don't want you to miss. This is so simple. And we'll, we'll dive into this in a whole sermon when we get to this point as we walk through verse by verse through the book of Acts. But I want you to see in verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. One of the practical things as we do a language study of Acts, we're going to see in Acts chapter 2, and they added about 3,000 souls to the church, were devoted. Acts 4, 4, that total added up to now we're up to 5,000. This is the first time, basic language, this is the first time in the book of Acts that the language of multiplication versus addition is used. There's this moment of exponential growth that is beginning to happen within the church because they were devoted themselves to the prayer and the ministry of the word. Let's not miss in context the emphasis of we will continue to keep prayer centered at all things. And as prayer is centered at all things, God will powerfully and sovereignly advance his kingdom. And so to pursue the kingdom and his power is to be dependent in prayer. Acts chapter 7. If you haven't noticed, we're pretty much going chapter by chapter. That should be the point. Point, chapter by chapter, the church, there's a picture of prayer. We just saw, I mean, we just saw that deacons brought, were brought into the church. Well, one of those deacons, Stephen, and there was a stoning of Stephen. Stephen gets up and he preaches the gospel. In uh, Acts 6, 7, we see this play out. And then there's this guy named Paul, Saul, he's called in Acts 8. But Paul, we know him as the Apostle Paul, but before he came to know Christ, he was overseeing the martyr of Stephen. He was killing Stephen because of his faith. And listen to what Stephen does. Acts 7, 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice or a loud prayer. And he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep and he died. But look at what happens in Acts 9, 18. And this verse, one verse is going to summarize the conversion of Paul, who was just right there killing Stephen a couple chapters before. 
And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Here's, here's what I want you to see. In Acts chapter 7, someone is dying for their faith. And in the process of dying for their faith, he prays for the forgiveness of the one who is killing him. And then the one who is killing him is forgiven a few chapters later. The greatest persecutor of the church becomes the greatest preacher within the church. Why? Because there was someone right there praying to God. Do we get this? I'm not sure that we do. But I, I want us to make sure we're seeing what is happening. Because I can tell you, as I'm preparing and studying and reading Acts, this just keeps, it's just like, it's just like I, I kept writing these down. It's like, there they are. Let's continue. Acts 9, 36 through 42. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men him, to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside. He knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. Through a moment of prayer, through a powerful prayer, understanding to see God powerfully work, there's a people, there's Peter believing and praying. Jesus, we come to you. And with all the faith that is within us, all the love and the passion that we have, Father, we pray for our sister Sophia and we ask and pray in the name of Jesus, wake up. God, we are in faith, just believing your word and coming out going, God, we need a powerful move of God and we are dependent. Because it's one thing for us to sit here and have a logical, theological study of dependence. It's another thing for our hearts to believe it. And I don't know about you, God, but I, all my heart can do is go, God, this is, this is you. And I trust that even in this tragedy, you're sovereign, just like the disciples prayed in Acts 4. You're sovereign. And so, Jesus, I'm calling on the sovereign God. And I'm asking you in the name of Jesus, wake up. God, we trust and we pray. When we come as we converse with your word, we pray. We see it here in Acts. We want to see it in our day. And you're the only one who can do it, so we trust you in the name of Jesus. We're asking for the healing of our sister. In Acts chapter 10, a devout man who feared God. This is a Gentile, Cornelius. A devout man feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people. So he was generous to others. And he prayed continually to God. Acts 10, 2, Gentile praying. Acts 10, 9, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So Acts 10, praying is told to go find this man, Peter. They're going. 
That's between verses 2 and 9. We get to Acts 9. Peter goes up to pray. He's about to have a dream so that when they come a-knocking, he doesn't ignore them. Then he, they all go together, and, they, and Peter teaches and preaches. And then in Acts 10, 44, what happens? While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, who had, that's the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them and speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Basically, can we, is there any reason why we shouldn't also accept these Gentiles into the church? That's what he's saying. And so those who received the Holy Spirit just as we have, and he implying, no, like we should let them in. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. For those in here who are not Jewish, the gospel was preached to Gentiles because there were two people who were praying. And through their prayers, God sovereignly continued to work to bring them together, to sovereignly have the gospel preached, the Holy Spirit come upon the Gentiles, and here we are today. Because there are some people who are devoted to God praying. Do you see the theme? Acts chapter 12. This is one of my favorite stories. This is a longer story, but let's, let's take some time and enjoy this one. Acts chapter 12, 1 through 17. James was just beheaded. James has died. So imagine there's some fear that has struck the church. Acts 12, 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Let's pause for a second. This is the same Peter who in Acts chapter 4 prayed, God, we understand that you are sovereign over your own death. Therefore, you're sovereign over my life. So that same Peter is now facing potential death the next day. Now, this isn't, this isn't a bluff threat because James was just killed. And the same person now has Peter. This is very much likely he's going to die. But he, trusting in the sovereignty of God takes a nap, and he goes to sleep. Like, I, I, and, I, and I say it funny because it is funny, because if I was facing death the next day, I, I don't know that I'd be sleeping. But he is, and he's asleep. And so an angel comes to him, and he struck him on the side, and he woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. I read this and I always think about any time I'm trying to get my kids out the door. It's like this nudging that's taking place. I, I really think that's what's happening with the angel here. He's like, wake up, get out of bed. It's like, imagine getting your kids up from school, like getting them up. It's like, get up, it's time to go to school. Put your clothes on, put your shoes on. We're gonna be late. We gotta get out the door. Don't you see, like you're being free from prison. Like it's, you know, like let's go. And he's it's, seriously, this is what's happening. He says, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And then he had to say to him, Wrap your cloak, put your jacket on, it's cold outside, right? Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by him, by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. 
Like this goes to show that he wasn't really aware of what's going on. Like the angel really was nudging him every bit of the way. It's like, come on. He, he didn't even realize it was happening. But, verse 10, but when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, meaning he realized what was going on, when he came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. Meaning he thought it was a vision, so he wasn't sure if it was real or not. But then he comes to this moment and he realized, this really is happening. I'm not just dreaming it because he was in a deep sleep. This could have been just one of those dreams, you know, that he wakes up and finds out he's still in prison. But he wakes up and realizes he's no longer in prison. This wasn't a dream. This really happened. But then let's continue on. Look at verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. See, Peter rested in the sovereignty of God and took a nap. But the rest of the church, they weren't ready to see Peter gone. They weren't ready for what tomorrow had. And so what did they do? They spent all night staying up praying, knowing that there is only one solution in this moment, and it's God's powerful working beyond anything that man can do. And so they're praying. And so Peter goes to the house. This is, where, this is, just, it, this is a comical story. All the, it just is for me. I don't, uh, hopefully you'll find some of that too. But recognizing Peter's, all right, so verse 13. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. This is why it's funny. They're praying that Peter would get out of prison and come. Peter gets out of the prison and comes, and they don't let him in. She doesn't let him in. Read it. It says it. She doesn't let him in. And they go, she goes, she's so excited, so she goes tells the rest of the church who's staying up all night praying. Hey, Peter's outside. Look what they say. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it must be his angel. Get this. They saw the situation so dire that they would stay up praying all night, but yet they still saw it was so dire, it was more likely that an angel would show up than actually their prayer be answered. Like that's how desperate they were. That you're more likely to see an angel at your house than actually the prayer be answered. That's the type of dependence that I don't know that my heart's ever felt. I'm just being honest because when I, I said it a minute ago, but when we talk about that they, would never, they knew that they would never see the power of God apart from dependent prayer to God, this is not a logical and mental thing that is to be applied only. It's not us just walking out of here, we need God, I guess, because the Bible says so, so let me go pray to him. No, this is a, this is a yearning in their soul that is far greater than our minds can comprehend that our minds would expect an angel because they're so dependent and the situation so dire. Do you see the dependency of prayer? That's why it's comical, because they're like, no, he, we're praying. They're so busy praying that he would be released that when he's released, they don't even notice it because they're still praying. But motioning to them, or when they figured it out, Peter continued to knock. He continued to be like, hey guys, they're gonna catch me if you don't let me back in. Prison break here, so please help me. But when Peter continued knocking, they opened and they saw him and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent. Because now, let's yell so loud with excitement that we let the guards know where you are. So he's like, no, 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 shh. 
So he motions with them to be silent. And he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said to them, tell these things to James and the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Why? Because he's in hiding. Like he, he just broke out of jail. He is literally in hiding. But do you see the picture? One of the greatest stories where we see God working miraculously is because there was a people up all night dependent in prayer. Acts chapter 13. Let's keep going. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Hey, this, this, is, this is a big deal. This is the moment where Paul begins his missionary journeys. But I want to give some context to this. We understand from Galatians 1 and 2, Galatians, Paul lays out a timeline from his conversion to the moment he was called to preach. And based off how we date a few of those things in the book of Acts, that there's a 12 to 18 year span in between Acts 9 and Acts 13. We can read Acts 9, Paul's conversion, Acts 13, where he sent out on his first missionary journey in about 15 minutes. But Galatians makes it clear, according to Paul, it's 12 to 18 years. And he spent the majority of those latter years right here pastoring the church in Antioch. So imagine this, Paul is your pastor for a decade. And then the Holy Spirit says, it's time for him to go. How would you feel about that? I say that to say, this moment where they're praying and fasting and the Holy Spirit says to go do something, this was not an easy request for them to feel. This was a request where they said, we know that God is calling you to do this. And how do they know that? Because they were praying and fasting. That a pastor, Paul, the apostle Paul, like MVP of pastors probably, is their pastor for a decade, and they make the tough decision to send him out for the sake of God's kingdom. Not for their sake, for the sake of God's kingdom. I said it last week, that sometimes we as a church will have to make decisions that's not necessarily best for us, but best for the kingdom. Here's an example of that in scripture. They made a decision that was not best for them, but best for the kingdom, and it was done because of prayer. Acts chapter 16, and the last one, and then we'll, we'll, we'll speed it up in the fill in the blanks after this. But Acts chapter 16, 25 through 31. Here's another one of those prison moments, but this time it's Paul. Paul's in prison. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, let's catch this story for a second, because we just talked about Peter getting out of prison in Acts 12. Now Paul's in prison, and now God works through an earthquake, and I, I'm telling, here's what I'm thinking if I'm Paul. Oh, God's sovereignly rescuing me just like he rescued Peter. It's time to get out. I mean, think about it. Acts 15, the chapter before, we know that Paul and Peter were together. So if they're sitting around drinking coffee or whatever they did in the first century to hang out and have pastors hang out and talk, they're going to have the moment where I'm, I'm pretty sure Peter said, hey, let me tell you about this time I was brought out of prison. So chances are Paul knows this story. Paul's in prison. An earthquake comes. Chains are released, doors are opened. Jonathan's concluding, it's time to go. Like, it's time to go. But he doesn't. 
and I have no explanation to why he doesn't other than he's in a moment of prayer and worship and the Holy Spirit just told him to stay. I, I don't have any other explanation. But he's walking in the Spirit, praying and worshiping, and for whatever reason, probably because he understood that God's sovereign and he has him there for a reason, and that if he were to leave, that this Philippian jailer would lose his life. And so I'm going to stay for his sake. He stays for his sake. The jailer understood that he stayed for a reason that is beyond himself, that it was out of love for him and to show God's love for him. So the jailer responds, what must I do to be saved? And we see the church in Philippi planted and God began to birth an incredible work. Why? Because some people in prayer, in prison were praying. They knew that they would never see the power of God apart from the dependent prayer to God. All right. I know we're moving fast, but we got to pick it up just a little bit. Second, why did they pray? Second, they were utterly desperate for God's grace. They were utterly desperate for God's grace. I want to highlight this because we see in the book of Acts this continued theme of grace. Because if we're not careful, I want to have right theology here for a second. Let me explain this. We understand that the moment we give our life to Christ, we are saved by grace through faith. That we are given eternal grace for all eternity, never to be lost. And because of that right theology, sometimes we can live thinking, I don't need grace today. But Acts, they didn't understand it that way. Acts 6, 8, I want us to see the theme of how often grace comes along. Acts 6, 8, we won't give context to all these, just let me say them. Acts 6, 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. He was full of what? Grace and power. We just got done talking about power. Let's see how grace and goodness of God's grace is in the middle of these stories as well. Acts eleven twenty three, And when he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Acts thirteen forty three, And after, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the what? Grace of God. Acts 14, 3. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Acts 14, 26. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that had to be fulfilled. Chapter 15, verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. Let's keep it going. Acts 15, 40. But Paul chose Silas and departed, and having been commended by others to what? The grace of our Lord. Acts 18, 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to his disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Acts 20, 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I prayed it a moment ago that God, we will sing your goodness because we must understand that if God gave us eternal grace but nothing else, she okay? Okay. Okay. A baby falls. We can pause a minute to make sure she's okay. That's okay. But I said a minute ago that if we understand the grace of Jesus, the eternal grace of Jesus, if he were to give us no other blessing on this side of eternity, he's still worthy of every breath that we breathe. 
for his glory. I want us to see not only how they prayed for the power of God, but they rested in the magnificent grace of Jesus. They were desperate for it. That's what they wanted. They wanted God's grace. It's not, it's not as, don't miss me, misunderstand me by saying as they couldn't attain it. No, it had already been given to them, but they just wanted to swim in it. They wanted to be all about it, and we see grace be this common theme. The church grew because of the grace of God. Why? Because the one who gives the grace gets the glory. If the church grows for any other reason, then God doesn't get the glory. But it's God's sovereign activity to redeem his people unto himself. Thirdly, why did they pray? They were utterly devoted to God's mission. Now, we'll spend a lot of time talking about this throughout the year, so I'm just going to kind of speed past this one for a second. But understand the important. This is a whole story of them on mission. But they were devoted to that mission. And if we're not living on mission, then we probably don't need prayer the way they do. But if we're going to be a church that's going to be focused on the kingdom of God, that's going to be focused on mission, then we recognize the importance of prayer. I think this is summed up well by a quote by John Piper. It'll be on the screen. He says this, Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comfort in the den. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. You and I don't need prayer when there's nothing at stake in our walk with Christ. We don't need prayer when there's no risk in Christianity, and we don't need prayer when Christianity is merely a routine on Sunday, week in and week out. But when we are on a mission, we're utterly devoted to the mission. Therefore, we're dependent upon God in prayer. Third question, what did they pray for? What did they pray for? And once again, we'll just kind of touch on a few things. We probably could have given 10 or 15 answers to this. But here's three things that I think are highlighted in the book of Acts. What did they pray for? First, they prayed for the success of God's word. They prayed for the success of God's word. I just reference Acts 4. They prayed for boldness so they could continue to preach the word of God. And I want us to get something. They didn't just pray for praise sake. I just said it. They prayed because they were on mission. And that mission was to proclaim the kingdom of God, to proclaim the king. When we study the idea of the kingdom of God, when we look at it in Gospels, we see Jesus proclaim the kingdom of God. When we turn to the New Testament, we see them proclaiming the king. Because Jesus is the king ushering in his kingdom. We are simply proclaiming the king and pointing people to the king. That's why Paul was saying Colossians 1, him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone so that some may come to faith. We understand that they, as the church, they proclaimed the king and they preached God's word. They preached grace for the advancement of the kingdom of God and heralding and proclaiming the king. So they prayed for the success of God's word. Second, they prayed for the spread of God's worship. They prayed for the spread of God's worship. It's this picture of nation after nation. One of my favorite just verses that come to mind, it's not an Acts, but just that summarizes this idea is, is Psalm 67, where the psalmist, quoting Numbers chapter 6, prays for God's blessing of grace upon them so that they can be a blessing to the nations, so that the nations will praise and glorify God. That it's all about his worship. Why? Is he, even before sin, or Genesis 1, when he created everything, has told us to go display his glory for his worship? Post-sin, why is he sovereignly working to redeem people unto himself? For his worship. 
You and I exist so that every breath that comes out of our mouth is for God's worship. So what do they pray for? The success of God's word, the spread of God's worship. And then thirdly and practically, they prayed for the needs of others around the world. They prayed for one another and for others around the world. We pray for the healing of our dear friend. We pray for a family who just lost a father because he was faithfully proclaiming the gospel. We pray for every small detail, even if you think it's minor, because it matters to us and it matters to God. We pray for one another. One of our values of a relentless prayer, one of the ways that's demonstrated is we say we never skip an opportunity to pray for someone. If we're just in a conversation and just going, man, I, I got a rough thing at work tomorrow, hey, let me pray for you. Because we see the value of being able to take everything to the Lord. No matter what, we pray for the needs of one another and for the world. And we see that the church did this also. There's a lot of examples that I could close with to illustrate this emphasis on kingdom prayer. But I, I end with one that was here in New York City. Fourth Great Awakening, September 1857, Jeremiah Lampier, a businessman. It's important, not a pastor, not a preacher, businessman began a noonday prayer meeting on Wednesdays here in a New York church. The small but growing numbers decided a month later to start meeting every single day. In October, they started meeting every single day. Within six months, over 10,000 businessmen were meeting in similar meetings across America. What were they doing? They're praying, they're confessing sins, they're being converted, and revival is taking place. It was a lay-led movement that harvested a million souls in two years. Why? Because there was a businessman who, who didn't just with his mind go, I need God, but from the yearnings of his heart says, I depend upon God and his work, and I want to see God move. So he just began to pray, and then God began to work, and others began to work. I want to close, time's sake, I close with three practical challenges to us. The application should be obvious. Let's be a people who want to see God powerfully move, so let's depend upon him in prayer. But here, here's practical challenges. First, I want us to see as we look at the book of Acts, that Acts 1, remember, Jesus says, the power of the Holy Spirit will come, or Holy Spirit will come on you and you'll receive power. So they prayed for that. But I want to notice that when that happened, they didn't stop praying. I want to point that out. Prayer and powerful prayer isn't we, we have this thing we're praying for. And now that it's happened, let's retire prayer. That's not what happened. But actually, as revival came in Acts 2, it fueled the mission of God and the prayer of God's people. So let us see that we're not just praying for something only, but even though they were, but as revival and God's kingdom comes, it's just going to fuel more, more prayer. So I want us to see that and understand that important truth. Second, what if we begin to pray on a daily basis something like this? God, give us the nations and do it in such a way that you get glory. It's basically Psalm 67. Go memorize Psalm 67 if that helps. Just a few verses, not very long. What does it look like for us to be a church that says we're, we're all about kingdom pursuit? So God, would you bless us so that we could be a blessing to our city and the nations for your glory? What does it look like to begin to pray that as a church every single day? And then the third challenge, just kind of take away, is this. Let us have a prayer like the Acts 4 prayer. Remember this? They prayed, understanding God's sovereign. They prayed to that sovereign God 
They were then filled with the Spirit, and they went to continue to speak the Word of God with all boldness. I want us to be reminded, and we're going to spend plenty of time talking about this this year, but we're going to church on mission to preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus to the city and around the world. Our prayers are not just for the sake of prayers, but it's for a lot of reasons, one in particular for the advancement of the Word of God. So let us pray, let's be filled with the Spirit, and then let us boldly go and speak the Word of God to those around us. Let's pray even now. Jesus, we come. And God, I've said it multiple times, but I say it again. That today's sermon needs to be practically applied, yes. But first, it needs to be very much realized in our souls, not just our minds. That there, it's one thing for our minds to comprehend this truth. It's another thing for our souls to cry it out. It's one thing for my mind to go, I know I need God. It's another thing from the depths of my soul to understand that I will never see the power of God apart from dependent prayer to you, God. So I'm asking for me, and I'm asking for our church, that you teach our souls that type of dependency. And that's a scary prayer, because that usually means you're going to bring us into humility to our knees. But I, I, with fear and trembling, still make that prayer. God, Teach my soul to depend upon you. Yes, Lord. Teach my Jesus. soul to depend upon you. Yes, Lord. And there, as the church depends upon you, mm. we'll see a powerful move of God for mm. your glory. So, Father, I pray. I pray over this room. I pray for the person in here today who may have come with a friend or a guest and, and they don't have a a relationship with you, meaning they have never turned to you as the king of their lives, Lord and Savior of their life, that you would infiltrate their soul with your grace right now. Yes, Lord. That you'll awaken their hearts unto you in faith. And that, Jesus, that you would pour out your grace on them. For we are saved by grace through faith. That we were dead, but because of your grace, you make us alive in you. So I pray if there's anybody in here today who does not know you, have not put their faith and trust in you as Lord and Savior, surrender their life to you, that Jesus today, your grace would draw them to you. That you would save souls in here for all eternity. And Father, I pray that you would continue to train us to be a church that every single day is desperate for your grace and dependent upon your power and comes to you in prayer. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is newhopenyc. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2. Goffles Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.